The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. So we welcome our online listeners. Today's message is number 55, Building Through Your Own Power. And this comes under our series, new series we just started called Identity in Finances. It is a little bit unusual that we are connecting money or finances to the message of identity in Christ. Why would it be so important for us to talk about money and our identity in Christ? So how you use your money is a direct reflection on what you consider to be important. That's why I love that uh, marketing term, what's in your wallet. A lot of spiritual truth to that. Identity in Christ and identity in the wallet is very critical. Well, I'm driving down the road and I'm going six miles an hour over the speed limit. I get pulled over by a police officer. The police officer comes to my window. I roll my window down. What is the first thing that the representation of authority asks for? I want to know if you're you. And I want to know if the vehicle you're driving is yours. Now, can you imagine being pulled over by the police officer? The police officer walks up to the window. You roll your window down, and the officer asks you for your identification. You pull out your card, and there's a picture of Jesus Christ on it. And he reads it, and it's, and it's uh, Class Heaven, uh, number 777 date of birth, eternity, name, Jesus Christ. It'd be a little bizarre, wouldn't it? And you say, this is my identity. No, I want your driver's license. This is it. This is who I am. Sir, I want your driver's license. If you do not give me your identity, I'm going to arrest you today. I, I just did. Who's going to be arrested that day? You are. That's how people treat the exchange life. When you speak so confidently and boldly and immovable in regard to your identity in Christ, the average body of Christ thinks you're nuts. Because you are separating who you are in Christ from who your flesh is. Paul went so far to say this. He said, It is not I who sins. Someone want to finish the verse? But sin that dwells within me. Uh, officer, even though uh, this is my, my identity right here, I make choices not to match the behavior of my identity. 
Officer, I was wrong for going over the speed limit. Would you please forgive me? The officer is going to say what? Take it up with the, the judge. I'm going to tell you a real life story. I was driving through Lyons one day and I got snagged because I was driving the normal 35 miles an hour through a school zone. Neglected to see the light. I wanted to say it got turned on after I got into it. Got pulled over and got a ticket for speeding in a school zone. I got the notification in the mail, went to appear in court, and I looked at the wrong date that was on the piece of paper and missed my court appearance. Got a threatening letter. I sent an apology to that person who sent me the letter that I was wrong for neglecting to pay special attention to the details, miss the date and whatever. Of course, they reassign me a date. I'm driving there to go to court. I go to the county courthouse. It's a municipal ticket. There's no one at the courthouse. I got five minutes before I'm to be there. I'm like freaking out. Okay, I neglected to show up one time, and if I don't show up this time, they're just going to pick me up. I run across the street, I ask this guy who's mowing along, I said, here's, here's where I'm supposed to be. I, the, the courthouse is closed. He says, you're supposed to be at the municipal court. That's one block away around, you know, so I got there, sat down, judge slams the hammer and gets things started. So it came my turn and I approached the bench and the, and the judge, you know, is reading a deal and says, you know, you were going six miles an hour over, you know, whatever, and he's kind of looking at me and the paperwork and he says, how do you plead? I said, guilty. Bam. The mallet comes down. He says that'll be $50 fine. The officer told me it was going to be up to $250. I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> So I'm walking away, and the attorney jumps up, representing the courts, and says, uh, Your Honor, that, that six miles an hour over is in a school zone, which makes it blah, blah, blah. And the judge looks at the piece of paper, error of the officer, and says, It is not stated on this. You're free to go. I backed up stood in front of the judge and I said, Judge, I am guilty of speeding in the school zone. You could even hear the <sighs> with the people that were waiting to step up. Okay, that is standing in your identity in Christ, facing, it is not I who sins, but the sin that is in me. Proper responsibility of what's in my wallet with the authority not letting the assumption of a lie squeak by when the truth was I was speeding in a school zone. The judge smiles at me. He's like, 
And he re-slams the hammer and goes, okay. That'll be 189 or whatever. Huh? $180. And I said, thank you, Your Honor. Now that kind of justice leaves a mark. Because all the stuff that he would do all day long, every day, does not necessarily leave a mark. But holding your identity in Christ needs proof by how it is I'm driving. And if I do choose to fall short, that there needs to be a separation of the two. This was my choice to do this. It had nothing to do with my identity. If you merge the two together, you have the emergent church. Get my point? They use Christianity as an excuse. This is critical when it comes to how we're going to sign our checks now. Just a quick reference to the passage we read earlier, Daniel 4.30. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Shannon's right. The my, my, my is critical. You play with God's power and sign your name to it, you're in serious trouble. God will belly you up for a while. This is a critical piece here, guys. He is a man who has been put in authority. Not only that, this particular king is the guy who built Babylon. Where's Babylon mentioned in the New Testament? Revelation. Yeah, book of Revelation. This man's decision to build Babylon is coming back to haunt us. And this Babylon was built by a very selfish leader for my residence, my power, my establishment, my glory, my majesty. Now, if you guys believe in emergent God, he's going to look at Nebuchadnezzar and go, you are a mere man. Your decisions affect me not. If you don't think that my decision to speed through that school zone, unfocused or not, purposely or not, it doesn't make any difference. My choice to violate the ordinances of that city had consequences. My identity in Christ is what preserves me, even under those decisions. This is what God wanted to show King Nebuchadnezzar. Did he learn it? He did for a little while. You spank any person long enough, they'll buckle. 
But will they go back is the question. So let's take a look at these. These words were the great Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had much pride and bondage when it came to building of the great Babylon. And if you've been doing any reading in the book of Revelation, you will discover that Babylon will show its face one more time. This city has always been a thorn in God's side. It has and will gain pride itself in wisdom, wealth, and power. In the case of King Nebuchadnezzar, he was turned over to a depraved mind for making such arrogant claims. Now, the reason why I put the graphics of the American dollar bill up when we started this series was to show you a very, very simple, simple truth. Remember when we showed you the little owl up, up, up by the one? Then we took it back into Babylon. Could someone please tell me if they remember what that owl stands for? Muluk. Antichrist. The other symbols that I showed you was from a very modern and old, aged, ancient movement called the Masons. Those people are tired of hearing about the pyramid on the dollar bill and the eye at the top. Some claim it's God, the Almighty of Abraham. Yeah, right. All those symbols I showed you on one, one just one bill is to show you the simplicity that Babylon is still being implanted in the minds of people today. Why? Why would the enemy be so active in planting the symbolism of Babylon? The owl, the Moloch, is so old it's ridiculous. Why? The video that I showed you this morning even though it's interesting that it is a marketing idea to get the people to click on the full message and so forth and so on. I know without question because of the study and research I've done in the human mind, which most of you have done as well, it's not complicated science, that the faster that images are thrown at you, the better chance you have of having those images stay in you. Do you understand that? 30-second commercials have a better impact on you than five-minute ones. Why? Because the mind works so much faster than any person's talking, reading, studying. And that's typically why they turn you off so quickly is the mind is working so fast they've already got figured out what you're about to say. And they switch. And they have figured this out about the human mind. So a lot of the movies and commercials and whatever that you are seeing in the media today are very fast moving and fast music and fast because they realize the mind processes quicker than what you're giving them. The enemy needs to keep his symbols alive 
in order for the reintroduction of the book of Revelation to become something you will actually believe when he reveals it. It will not be anything new. It won't be new world order. It'll be the oldest world order ever. It'll be what always has worked. Symbols. Markings. God himself even knows this, and so he marks the bride of Christ, does he not? And Satan always replicates it, so he marks his followers. 666, 777. 666 is one mark short. What is the definition in the Greek of sin? Falling short of the mark. You think all this is just conspiracy and woo stuff of Christianity? You're going to be surprised one day because it's all going to be brought to the surface. Visually. <clears throat> Daniel 4.33 says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This man became like a beast. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do, we are looking at a diagram in our PDF that if you are listening to the audio, I encourage you to go back to the library, click on the PDF that will give you these, these slides because it's important that you see the graphic of what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. And this is from uh, external internal message, diagram 100, the passage that I have pulled to extract this, this pictorial from is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And here's what you have. You have self, as Shannon brought out, my, 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 my. And when Nebuchadnezzar saw something as a negative in his life, whether it was looking at an unfinished kingdom, whether it was looking at Daniel, whatever. It was important that he turn that external into a plus so he would feel good about himself. So he could say, for I built this with my own power. The flesh is always about glorifying self-power. Validating power. I look at modern leaders today politically, for example. When you say a negative thing about a particular political leader, they won. Do you understand that? There is more marketing statistics prove there's more marketing value in negative things being said about you than positive. I mean, if you get this little, little connection here, it will simply change your view in regard to what you're looking at right now. There are certain things in your life, if you learn the trick of the trade, you're going to want to turn from a positive to a negative. That's what Satan does. 
Because he thrives off of the negative statements. The name it, claim it, stab it, and slab it, demon behind every bush kind of Christian. He loves it. Because he's not behind every bush, he's not omnipresent. So if Christians are running around saying that he is omnipresent, everything's about the devil, he gets the glory. So that is the overall thing that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to accomplish. Now let's take a look at this. There are three primary requirements... And the first one that we need to talk about in respects of handling your finances biblically is we have to look at these three primary requirements that God has laid out before we can look at all of the incredible details behind handling your finances through your identity in Christ. Top of the pile of the three is giving. Being free from the bondage of the love of money begins with following the guidelines God laid out for us for biblical giving. When we give, it brings God into our finances in a personal way. It also provokes God to give more to the giver. Why would he do that? More will be given away. God's miraculous plan of economy. Remember Jack Taylor's book? I believe is one of the most classic books of all books that have ever been written on finances. It's an old, old, old book, but if you go on Amazon.com and uh, type in God's Miraculous Plan of Economy, you can buy a used one. It is a powerful little book. It changed my entire perspective years ago on my view of God and giving. It opens the door to God's miraculous plan of economy, personally, community-wise, and politically. You cut this one off, and you've cut off the entire miraculous plan of God. That's what it boils down to. That's how important this is to us. Give, this is what it says to us in Luke 6, 38. Give and it shall be given to you. A new habit of giving must start with the, what the Bible calls tithes and offerings. Tithe is the highly requested 10%. Offering is the above and beyond. Very interesting thing about God's numeric system in the Hebrew. In the end times, once the book of Revelation has finally been fulfilled, literally, and things come to a close. The new earth is privileged with us as the bride of Christ. And we are privileged with the new earth. Our new residence. That moment. What most likely are going to be the percentage of those who are on the wide road that led to destruction versus the narrow road that few are on? What probably will be the percentage? 90-10. We're not talking about money here. God is using money to show you a prophetic 
end time conclusion. Jesus himself said it. All of the terms used in you reconciling with your brother and sister, father and mother, and friends, or enemies, are financial terms. Reconciliation, being held in account, all of them are financial terms. For a reason. God is a numeric God. When he's using the 90-10, he is radically proclaiming a prophetic statement about the gospel and his son and you as the bride of Christ. So what does the enemy do? He creates an emergent view of Christianity. Greek definition of Christian is what? Christ follower. Is a Christ follower going to get to heaven, contrary to the movie? No. So the movement is to create people sitting in pews following Christ. I did just a Google search this week, just for the fun of it, to see how many books that are referenced with following Christ. I'm not even going to give you the number. You go do it. Just Google books, Christ follower, and see what happens. That does not prove anything for Satan to get you to mimic the life of Christ will deceive you into understanding it is Christ to do the living through you. Two separate worlds. This is critical. Ties and offerings. Offerings is above and beyond. In other words, will it be exactly 10% of God's numeric coding that get to heaven and become the bride of Christ? No, it'll probably be more. But he'll get his 10%. Why are we to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Because you fill that cattle yard so that the Father can come and pick the 10% he wants in order to carry on a promise that he made his own son. Hebrew law. This is Hebrew law. The firstborn male son must get married. Christ was not exempt from that. Giving is the Christian's way of investing in heaven. Kind of like heavenly stock, like you would invest in some company that you know is going to prosper kind of thing. This is your, as a body member, investment in something that you know is going to not rust and get destroyed or have worldly things eat at it. Nothing can get at this investment. Can you imagine this? That when you take a dime out of your pocket from the dollar you earned, nothing is going to corrode, steal, take away from that investment. It is amazing. Matthew 6.20 basically tells us this. Thieves do not break in or steal. That is associated with the enemy. Any form of attack from the enemy 
cannot get at this investment. If I give $5 to a street person and I'm having these thoughts in my head and I'm just going to throw it out because it's so standard, it's ridiculous. What do you struggle with from grabbing your wallet following your unction of giving five bucks to seeing this street person standing on the street with hair down to the middle of their back look like it hasn't been washed in a month their clothes looks like it's from seven, ten years ago, unwashed. What's going through your head? That they're not going to spend it the way that you want them to. They're not going to go to McDonald's and get themselves a Big Mac. They're going to go to the, the uh, convenience store and get themselves a bottle of whatever. You see, that's the trap. And that's what's happening to our church today, and that's what's happening even in the situation I gave you earlier, is that there are people giving very precious, valued 10% to a ministry, to a leader, to whatever, and you think that it's the person who's giving the widow's might that God comes down on? Wrong. You see, the heart that is giving that 10%, or above is covered. Now we have a brand new scenario situation of what God is going to do with the storehouse money that that person has been entrusted to. Different complete issue. Second primary requirement is receiving. The fact is that most people who give do not know how to receive. So when you find someone who's a really, really good giver and you're really, really impressed and you're like, wow, they, they really have a heart of God. That's not my test. I don't know about you guys. That isn't my test. My test is all three of these. And it's not because it's my test. It's because it's scripturally. Oh, they can give. But can they receive? If they cannot receive, their giving is pure legalism. They give to get, but they don't want people to know that they're getting it. They want to be covered. That is not what's being talked about here. If we are good givers, then we are awesome receivers. To rephrase that, if we are Christ as life givers, we are Christ as life receivers. God doesn't want you just to be able to give. He wants you to be able to receive so that you can account, calculate properly to give to His kingdom work again. And again, and again, and again. That's the kind of person we're talking about. God, once God sees that he has a giver on his hands, he opens the doors of heaven to directly and indirectly bless him or her. He knows the more he gives this type of giver, the more he will give away. And the more given, the more needs are fulfilled by God. In order to be one of God's receivers, we have to be in tune with God himself. Personally, I believe God is... Uh, intimately close to givers and receivers. 
This person, for example, I'm going to use Shannon as an example. God knows where he's at and if he is a giver and he's a receiver. God knows the prayers of Shannon and the prayers of mine or the prayers of a body can be answered. Why God depends, if I could use that word, on the prayers of his people, then does the answer is a great mystery to me. But he does. Because see, whatever you ask, you shall receive thing is a critical thing. Remember when James was preaching on that? And there were things surrounding that that he would say, no, God's not going to answer you until this is done. So receiving is a critical piece of this. The third element is, is accounting. It's one thing to be a giver and receiver, but it is an entirely different thing to be a manager or an accountant, one who keeps adequate track and account of what is going in and what is going out. You see, in order, just try to, to as difficult as it is, try to picture in your mind God, the author of all resources, having to make a decision on whose business, Christian business, that he's going to promote. What managers within organizations that he's going to promote, since he is the author and finisher of it all. If he finds one who's a giver and receiver, but one who cannot properly account the numbers, Will he cause that person in ministry or business to be successful? Absolutely not. And that is how we are supposed to function as his servants, as leaders, as encouragers. Show me your giving pattern. Show me your receiving pattern. Show me your accounting system. Take your wallet out. Let me see your checkbook stubs. Oh, you're a good investment. Any good quality businessman or woman will do those three things before they invest in anything. <laughs> Common sense. Are they going to give to the community? Are they going to receive from the community? And can they show the numbers to prove it? That's why God usually puts a year in an engagement period once you're engaged. Give me the proof, woman, that you've not been with another man, that you are a quality, that you've honored your father. That you, that's why that one year is given. When Joseph engaged to, to uh, Mary, that one year was proof. And what happened? She got pregnant. In her engagement. So what did Joseph think he had to do? Quote unquote, put her away. That put her away in the Greek is divorce. Division by force. Angel had to show up and say, Joseph, calm down. This isn't about you. This is about my father. Your father. The Father of Heaven, for He has done this. Come, 
You see, it had to be a supernatural explanation to her and to him. But that's how it works. Everything we eat, spend, save, or invest is to be held into account to God for how we use each and every penny we have. Many do not even realize that the word is clear as to what we should spend his money on. I will reveal a lot of this stuff later on in the process of covering the 30, 30 principles. But God told us in his word to be free from those uh, who would waste our time or take our money. He instructs us to use great care and prayer in what we purchase. Why? Of course it is uh, time and money are actually owned by him and they're given to us to be stewarded properly. Recently I asked a ministry leader who is a very significant uh, point man for us in Africa. I, I said I need one full year of records of how you spent every nickel, every dime, every dollar in your ministry. Then we'll make a decision to answer his request. I went through two days of insults from this person. You have no right to my accounting. You have no right to ask those questions. I will only give an account the money you've given me, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I knew I would, that's exactly why I put the requirement out there, is to muster that up. You see? Not to reject him, to help put things in order. These three things are absolutely critical for prosperity, properly speaking, in ministry, in God's storehouse. In closing, we have a different diagram to look at, 103. We have Christ as life, our identity in Christ. We have our identity in Christ pouring out in and through us to these externals, whether they are negative, whether they are positive, it really doesn't matter. Some people will never get quality friends. Some people will never get marriages. Some people will never have their perfect job. Got to leave it a negative until the day they die. But it doesn't change anything. See what I mean? The fruit of the Spirit is coming out in spite of prosperity externally. So what has Satan done to the average church? What's prosperity doctrines? Someone want to explain it? You deserve everything that God has and all of his resources. They're free and available to you. And all you need to do is come up with a marketing plan to put out there to grab that 10% of the people's giving. It's become business. Money changers over a table in the foyer of a church. And if you just think that the radical television evangelists do this, you need to wake up and walk into your average church. Because it's going on everywhere. 
That's not what the life of Christ is about. That manifestation of the life of Christ needs to come out whether you're ever a large and successful ministry. And this, as you guys know, is a battle that goes on in my flesh often is that, God, if I was just like such and such a ministry, people would give more. My budget for this thing is $2.5 million for the next three years. And we're wondering where we're going to get our grocery money for next week. Because we pay our ministry stuff with our salary first, and then whatever's left in our salary is what we live off of. And I'm like, God, why? Why can't we be like Charles? You see what I mean? The sin of comparison. And he takes me back and goes, what's this all about again? What did you ask me to do years ago is to keep you a nobody so that the somebody can truly be somebody throughout the whole world? I hate it when God keeps his word. <laughs> Seriously, most of the time I'm like, oh, oh until I become a lover of it. Here's our identity matter statement. Identity comes when we are committed to God's divine purpose of money. The purpose of money is not to bring us security and protection. These are reasons that many use, of course, but these reasons don't have caps or ceilings to them, and that is the problem. There's no cap. How wealthy should my ministry be? I have a friend in Phoenix that has one of the largest churches in the world. And I asked his associate at one time for, because as you know in America, if any American citizen asks you for accountability of nonprofits, you have to give them the numbers. And I asked him what their annual budget was. I'm not going to tell you the number because it really doesn't matter. The number probably would bend your mind. But I will tell you this. I was working with the Uganda government at the time. And that one church's annual budget, which they receive and much, much more, was the entire annual budget of the country of Uganda. That's one church. So there's something wrong here. Where is the ceiling? How much is enough for our little church here, Lord? It isn't. That's why the church has to get bigger and 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 bigger. So now we, you have to support all these buildings. And you have to support all this lawn care. You have to support, support that ministry over there. And it just becomes this huge bureaucracy and if you think we serve a God that sits back and says I'll cover you because you name it, claim it, stab it and slab it and want it, I'll cover you because that's what it looks like is that God's will is confirmed through success of receiving those dollars from the marketing plan that is not the God we serve 
God wants things done from a nobody position, a quiet position. That it would take endless hours to figure out who's behind this idea, who's behind that church, who's behind whatever. Our identity statement is critical. Money is for full dependence on God. It demonstrates God's love and power over us. When we have money, we become stewards. When we become stewards, we have to depend on the one who is going to tell us how to steward it. Matthew 6.30 says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Of course, finishes it with you of little faith. I can't even tell you how many hours, days, weeks of my life I struggle with that. When you are dealing on a daily basis with some of the most powerful, successful, financially stable ministries in the world, and you're wondering where you're going to get your gas money for that week, that messes with me. <laughs> it doesn't with God. It just doesn't. He's just answering my prayer. God actually does listen to you. God actually does know what's best for you. But will you accept it? And embrace it. Not for the week because you're in a spiritual mood. But for the rest of your life like Paul. He was not born a pulper. Do you understand that? Paul was one of the wealthiest kids on the face of the earth. Spiritually, psychologically, and financially. He was being trained at six years of age for becoming a chief high priest. And how did the boy die? He had more money in his ministry than any ministry in eternity. Not. It was Paul and a couple men. Period. Still putting tents together till his crinkled up old hands could hardly stitch the tents anymore. He died in poverty, but in wealth and knowing who he was in Christ. Which is where we get the majority of the message of the exchange life is through Paul's writing. Incredible, absolutely incredible story. There's so much more on our website that you can learn about your identity in Christ. This is 55 of 55 messages on your identity in Christ. Those of you who are just jumping in on 55 because it was on the home page, go to the online school. The Identity Series. Click on number one and go through that process because you will see some treasures. Hear some treasures of what it means to be the Bride of Christ. Thank you, online listeners, for listening today. We're going to turn the podcast off so that we can go to our local questioning and answering. But if you do have a question that needs an answer... I would certainly be willing to dialogue with you through the scriptures to come up with an answer for you. Please log on to the website address that's coming up next. 
This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at IOMAmerica.org. That's IOMAmerica.org.